Hey, everybody. I love singing with you. I'm so thankful for this team that leads us so faithfully and thankful for Ben's leadership there and glad to be with you in the book of John. So we're in a series entitled Unveiled and we are plugging through um, the last part of the book of John. So for a couple weeks we were in John 13. Last week we were out of order, so to speak. We were in John 14 verses 15 to the end. So now we're going backwards to get chapter 14 verses 1 through 14. So that's what we're doing. There is some method behind the madness as well as some ice that was behind the madness um, as we had prepared uh, what we were doing. So uh, I want to read a little bit in John 14 and then we will uh, spend time together just understanding hopefully the love of the Father. John 14, I want to read the first eight verses and then pray. The Word of God says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in this moment we would know Jesus. We would know the love of the Father and how that has been perfectly demonstrated to us in Christ, and I pray that we would know that Christ is enough for us. Everything we need is in him. And so as we go through, I pray that our love for you would increase because we see your magnificent love for us. Teach our hearts, shape us, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Amen. The word enough, what does enough mean? When I think of enough, sometimes I'm sitting at a dinner table and many times this is a Thanksgiving meal for me, but my wife's such a good cook, I have these moments a lot where I've eaten so much, I'm almost sick and there's still more food to be had, right? And so it's offered, would you like more of this? And I say, no, 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 that's enough. You know, it's just like you're barely able to stand. You know, you've had too much food. There's a sense of if you have a drink in your hand and someone comes by, if you're at a restaurant, to pour something into your cup, you say, no, thanks, that's enough. What does enough mean? It means that I'm complete. There's a sense of fullness. I am satisfied. No more is needed. And what Jesus wants to be crystal clear for all of his followers is that the Father is enough for us. But we will never truly know the Father unless we know Jesus Christ himself. 
so that we can sing what we just sung. Christ is enough for us because Christ reveals to us perfectly the Father. When we are talking about a series entitled Unveiled, Jesus is unveiling several things from chapter 13 all the way to uh, the end of the book. But specifically in chapters 13 through 17, he is unveiling something. And here, the main idea is Jesus is unveiling this. Jesus reveals that the Father is enough for us, but we can only get to him through Jesus. So much so that he'll say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. There is this perfect representation of Jesus and his communication to us of the Father. So, Jesus is revealing the enoughness, if you want to make that a word, of the Father. And here are the three things that I think we'll see in this passage. One is our need for the Father. Two are the works of the Father. And three, communion with the Father. But with every one of those, they have Jesus attached to them. The necessity of the Father means we've got to get to him somehow. That's through Jesus. The works of the Father mean how in the world can we do his works? That's through knowing the Son, Jesus Christ. And communion with the Father, how do we have access to him? It is through Jesus himself. And so Jesus wants us to believe today that he is enough because he is perfectly showing us the Father. So let's dive through. Let's look at this together and begin to be filled up with how full only God can make us. So, number one, our need for the Father. We'll look at verses 1 through 11 here. So, because it's the most verses, it will be the longest point. So, take heart, the other ones will be shorter. Front end loaded here. Number one is our need for the Father. Look at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why would he say this at the beginning? Well, because in chapter 13, he has just said, one will betray me, and then Judas leaves. Jesus has already said, I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm going to leave you. And so there's this sense of troubledness. He's also told what is pretty much the leader of the pack, Peter, the one who, although in his zeal, you would think he's the one that's going to stick closely or closer than anybody else, has just told him that you're going to deny me three times. So, of course, when we dive into the next sentence, Jesus is, let not your hearts be troubled. They're anxious. There's this sense of, of just a troubled soul. Sadness, it could be mixed with anxiety. Let not your hearts be troubled. What is the remedy for the troubled soul? It's the same remedy that Jesus had when he looked on to Lazarus. And Lazarus was dead. And Lazarus' sisters were coming to him. And they were weeping. And it says that Jesus was basically outraged, but he was also troubled in spirit. He was outraged that sin existed in the world, but he was troubled that death was there. He was troubled at the grief that was before him. It's the same word that's used, and it's the same remedy. Jesus trusted. He trusted in his God. He trusted that God's plan was best. The plan to let Lazarus die and then come back and raise him from the dead. And now the same remedy is for us. What do we do? He dives in right at the heart, right at the beginning, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in the Father. Trust also in me. It's the same trust, but he's just saying at this point, they are convinced they need to trust the Father. And now he's stretching it out a little bit and saying, that means you must trust in me. You must trust that what I'm about to do is going to be for your good. So, troubled soul at the beginning, 
And if you're not now, you will be. The core foundation for what begins to calm the raging heart is that God can be trusted. He can be trusted. The command is to trust him. It means he can be trusted. With everything that you are, with every moment of your day, you can trust him. And so, he says a massive promise right after this. One of my favorite verses in the scriptures, verse 2. In my father's house are many rooms. Some versions uh, will translate it, in my father's house are many mansions. The point here is the father's house. It's, he's taking a, an image, a metaphor, only because our minds are so limited in understanding the presence of God. And so he's speaking here of heaven and being in the presence of God, and he says, I'm going to use the metaphor of a house, that that's where God dwells, so to speak. And he's saying that there will be room in that house for you to be with me. The point is not the elaborate nature. The point uniquely here is not all the different nuances of heaven. The point is that the Father will be there and you will have a place with him. So rather than stretch this verse to try to wax eloquent about what heaven will look like, Jesus wants it to be crystal clear. The point of heaven is that's where the Father's going to be. You need the Father. That's what's beautiful about heaven. And Jesus says, don't be troubled. Yes, I'm going to go to him, but as I go to him, meaning I'm going to die. But as I go to him, preparing a place for you and I'm going to be raised from the dead and I will be ascended to the right hand and I'm preparing a place for you the place is already there I'm making it ready for you see what he says if it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you there's tons of room I'm going to get it ready for you that's why you shouldn't be troubled trust me in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, whenever Jesus says will, it's a good check, okay? That's a check that will cash. No bouncing here. Jesus says will. It's going to happen. I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am in the presence of the Father, there you will be also. Do you see how intricate Jesus' argument here on how much we need the Father. We need the Father, and he's going there to prepare a place for us. Homelessness is a horrible tragedy. That people would have no place to lay their head. I think we underestimate many times how good it is that many of us have a home to go to. There are many in our city, thousands in our city, that do not have a home. And when it gets cold like it is outside, my heart breaks. Because some of those people out on the streets, they're my friends. I know many of them. And they have to wait for it to get below 32 in order for them to have a place at the rescue mission or at the Wilmington Street shelter because that's the white flag moment. Well, what about when it's 35 and they have no place? It's meant to hit us with a sense of grief. It's not how it's supposed to be. And we take for granted that we have a place to stay. And this just even more echoes the fact that we are citizens of another place. And the home we have is not our ultimate refuge. The home we have is a tool to be used to serve others. Because our real home is right here with the Father. And that's what Jesus is saying. You will not be homeless. Trust in me. Those who trust in me 
They will not spend an eternity in hell. They will have a place prepared for them in the presence of God, and that is enough for them. We need the Father. And he is saying to these nomadic men, (laughs) your main aim is not a home right here. Your main aim is what's going to happen for eternity. And so he continues on. He continues on. But something that struck me, and I don't want to miss this, something that struck me is look, look at who he's making the promise to. The disciples that are there, including the guy who's going to deny him three times in just a little bit. He makes the promise to fragile, denial-prone individuals. That's us. <laughs> That's you. That's me. Fragile, unbelief-prone, denial-prone, fearful-prone. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, Rex. Trust in me. You're a wreck. Trust in me. Do you see he's not calling them to lean upon their prowess, of their ingenuity, their strength. Lean on my strength. I will prepare a place for you. And so to one of those fragile people, Verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. And here comes a fragile one. He's known later in the book as Doubting Thomas. But you know, he's included in the one that's going to get a place. Isn't that unique? Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How in the world can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going, so how can you tell us we know how to get there? And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, you can almost hear it. It's this sense of, yes, you do. Yes, you do. It's like, this is the unveiling moment. It's like pulling back the curtain. And Jesus steps forth and says, right here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. This is the unveiling moment. And he continues on. Do you hear that though? Don't miss. This is why I entitled it The Necessity of the Father. No one comes to who? Yeah, dialogue. No one comes to who? The Father except through me. The goal is still to be in the presence of God. There's a delight. There's a longing to be with God. But no one gets there except through him. That's why Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the access to the Father. I am the mediator. I am the truth. That is who I am. I am true. There is no falseness in me. Not only what he says is true, but it's his nature. I am true. I am truth. And I am life. This life eternal will only come through me. So that's how you get there. It's. Do you hear this? I mean, it's like, It's like me telling you to go outside, and I want you to go down to the PNC building. It's the big tall one with the pointy thing. And I say, go to that building. Well, what you think of is, okay, that's bricks and mortar, and I know how to get there. I make a couple turns. I can go down Hargett Street, and I can turn down Fayetteville Street, and I'll be right there. His emphasis is not in location. His emphasis is on person. Rather, I say, go to PNC to meet this person. Well, even if you get to the building, you don't know where the person is. The point is not exactly how to get there, meaning take a left here. He's not talking in space. He's talking in relationship. He's he's changing their categories. They're thinking, you know, how many steps? What direction? Give me a formula. And he's saying, no, it's a relationship You know me, you know the Father. You know me, you'll get to him. You need the Father, and you need a relationship with him, and that comes through a relationship with Jesus. No one gets there except through him. In verse 7, if you had known me, 
you would have known my father also. From now on, or it could be translated, assuredly, you do know him and have seen him. He's kind of redefining knowing categories here. You know Jesus. They knew Jesus. They respected him. They even loved Jesus. But this was part of the unveiling moment, the pulling back of the curtain to say, if you know me, you know the Father completely. You know him. I am the perfect demonstration of the Father to you. And so he says, surely you do know him because you've seen him, because you've seen me. And now Philip speaks up, another one of those fragile dudes. And Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip picks up on half of the message. This just gives me such comfort. Jesus was pretty clear. If you see me, you see the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. And they're still not getting it. This is why if some of you get frustrated many times with me saying the same things over and over, it's because we need the same things over and over. And it's also because this is not an intellectual journey. This is a relational journey. And the beauty is I get to listen to wonderful sermons here. Not meaning I go back and listen to my own. I don't do that at all. I listen to Travis. I listen to Pastor Travis, to Pastor Byron. I listen to Pastor Hunter. I listen to the other guests that come. And I sit. And I know what it's like to listen to a wonderful sermon, to be stirred in the heart, and to walk out those doors, to have relationship with you, and then forget what in the world just happened. And every one of you in this room are like that. You're like that. Jesus is dealing with forgetful people. This is why community groups are so important. You've got to have the same thing poured back into you. And we have so misunderstood Jesus at this moment that it is just about knowing him. Okay, he's 33 years old right now. Okay, I have a, this relationship with him. I've seen this kind of miracle. They want him to know him. A relationship that knows him, that knows him in and out. This is a communion with the Father moment. What this means for us is we cannot just be hearers of the word. We must be doers also. The hard work for us as listeners is to take something out of here and rehearse it over and over so that it changes our lives. That's not my job. That's what we do as a body. We hear the word, and then it's our responsibility to rehearse the word, and then to ask ourselves, why does that matter in my life? And then what is the next step I can take to have an intimate relationship with the Father and share his love with somebody else? That's not my job. That's yours. And mine as a follower of Jesus. And as we come through here, Philip doesn't get it. Just show me the Father. He's enough for us. Well, what's beautiful is there's much to commend about that statement. But then he also misses the unveil. <laughs> so, I want to spend just a second on this phrase. Because I want us to be convinced that the Father is enough. What Philip said is, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Where does he get that? Where does he get the ability to say that? Well, he gets it from Jesus' Bible. That is his Bible. He gets it from the Old Testament. And as he's reading it, he might come across passages like Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. Now, I'm going to read a lot of scripture for you. One, it's the, con it's the confidence that I believe God's word is powerful. And two, it's to demonstrate why Philip would say the Father is enough for him. Where does he get it? Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. Just let that run around your head for a little bit. And the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandment to a thousand generations. What does he know about God? God is faithful. God keeps his covenant, and he's filled with steadfast love. Look at Psalm 68, 5. What do we know about the Father? Our God is the Father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Our God is holy and he is a protector. He fights for the defenseless. He is a father to those who have no fathers. That's who Philip knew. Psalm 103, 11 through 13. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his. Who's the his? That's the Father. His steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The Father was enough for him. Who is a God like you, Micah 7, 18 says? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Is that the picture you have of the father? That's the picture Philip had. And so he says, if you give me the father, that's enough. He not only got it from Jesus' Bible, but he got it from Jesus' teaching. Listen to some of the things that Jesus says about the father. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You hear that? Jesus saw everything that we do as a means of giving glory, showing off the greatness of the Father. Matthew 6, 14. Who did Jesus say the Father was? He says, if you forgive others your sin or their sins, trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. The Father is a forgiver. We also saw Matthew 6, 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He's a rewarder. Matthew 6, 27, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. And if he feeds the birds, are you not more valuable than they are? Philip was hearing this over and over. He was reading it in the Bible that was Jesus' Bible, and he's hearing it from the mouth of his Savior. The Father is enough. He's loving. He's forgiving. He's compassionate. He is a friend and a protector to the fatherless and the widow. Give me the Father, and that's enough. Is that how you view God? Is that how you view him? How do you view him? How do you view God? If I say God is loving, your heart might be filled with warmth. But then what if I say God is holy? God is just. All of a sudden we begin to think, not that God is good, but those warm feelings begin to turn into maybe cold feelings sometimes, don't they? Do you have that? Almost like Michael, um, Michael Reeves, he wrote a book called Delighting in the Trinity, and he talks about this. It's almost like we take the attributes of God like God is moody. Like on Monday morning, God is love. Monday afternoon, he's holy. Monday evening, he's just. Then Tuesday morning, we hope he gets loving again, and then he just kind of shifts. And depending on the mood we think he's in or the attribute we are tempted to highlight will be the degree to which we feel a comfortability to go to him or to want to be with him. 
This is a crucial point when it comes to all relationships. How you view something will determine how you treat it. I do this in marriage counseling, one of the first things I do. How you view someone will determine how you treat them. If you think you're better than someone, you will look down upon them. If you think, look at me, I'm rich, you're poor, then you will think I'm powerful, they're not, and they need me. How you view something will determine how you treat it. And if you view God as moody and you don't know when love is coming out or when holiness is coming out, then you will not want to approach him because you believe he's fickle. He's untrustworthy at times. God is love. John 17 talks about God the Father in saying that before the foundation of the earth, he loved the Son. Hear that. Before the foundation of the earth, he loved the Son. God is, 1 John 4, he is love. That's who he is. And you know how Jonathan Edwards talks about this, what we think is a moodiness of God? How Jonathan Edwards speaks of holiness. Holy means set apart. Jonathan Edwards wants us to be crystal clear that the setting apart is the beauty of his love. Let me say that again. How is he set apart from us? It is the beauty of his love. We are vicious, evil, cold people. And how is God set apart from us? He's not like that. He is love. And he did not have anger until sin enters the world. It's not who he was. He's love. It's not who he is. And so when our sin enters the world and God rightly judges sin, that's love. That's what he's supposed to do to sin. But it says he won't retain his anger forever. He is loving. He is compassionate. God is not moody. He's always loving. And he's loving by being holy and separate from us. He's loving by being just and compassionate. He is love. Philip is convinced the Father is enough. And the burden for us in this moment is, do we believe the Father is enough? And I pray, I pray that in this moment, you are convinced that the Father is enough. That he is enough. I tell you, this has really helped me this week. Past couple weeks, actually. When someone did not approve of me. When someone criticizes me. This phrase was immensely helpful for me. That if someone says something right about me, it's okay for me to repent and to say, I am wrong. Why? Because the Father is enough for me. And he has told me that even as a sinner, he will not separate from me because I trust in him. Not because I'm good enough for him. I just encourage you to take this phrase and use it. When someone says something right about your heart and you are wrong, be humble enough to say, I was wrong because the Father is enough. And your wrongness will not rip apart that relationship. If someone disapproves of you and you are even right, but yet they're still against you, you can say the Father is enough because he accepts us by faith alone. In Christ alone, this phrase, the Father is enough, has been beautiful for me. And it also frames my pursuits. What am I going after in life? The Father is enough. And how do I get to the Father? Jesus tells us in the next sentence in verse 9. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves that I do. Trust in me. 
You see, that's the unveiling moment right there. That you will know the Father when you know the Son. But let's say it another way. You can't love the Father without loving Jesus. And this is epidemic in our culture. Many people loving God, and they'll just stick with God in general. And they'll attach God to things that lead to them doing good things. But Jesus is not in the picture. He's not talked about. He's not treasured and cherished. They love God. And our culture is saying, just love God. I mean, people who are Godless talk about God. It's the politically correct thing to do. Atheism is not, not the in vogue thing. It happens, but it's not the invoke. The invoke thing is to say, I'm praying for you, and here's God. God bless America. God bless you. God bless this. But where is Jesus? You can't love God unless you love Jesus. You can't do it. Jesus says, I am the way. Access to the Father only is through me. And that's why Jesus is such a dividing line. Talk about God all day long, but don't talk about Jesus. Jesus says, have you not been with me long enough? I am the only way. You need the Father. He is enough. But you can only get there through me. So may we not compromise on our affection for Jesus. May we not compromise on our love for Jesus, our pursuit of Jesus. Jesus is enough for us because when you have Jesus, you have unfettered access to the Father. And so, I pray that we don't lose our confidence in Christ and we don't lose our conversation about him. Because when you have Jesus, you have the Father. Now, not only do we have a need for the Father, but we have the works of the Father. I told you the first one would be longer. Verse 12, look at it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, why did he start? Let's make sure you understand what he's saying. Why did he bring up works? Well, he's saying, verse 11, let's let's put it in rewind just a second. Look at verse 11. Believe me, Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If that's hard to believe, he says, at least look at the works that I've been doing they give evidence that this is not just some natural Joe that's in front of you. And don't mean to use a Joe in vain, so sorry if you're Joe in here. He's saying, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now that is a remarkable statement. The works are so supernatural, so magnificent that they give evidence that Jesus and the Father are one. They give evidence that Jesus is the exact demonstration of the Father to his followers. And then he says, whoever believes. Now, some want to limit this, that just the apostles will do the works that Jesus does. This says, whoever believes. Whoever. That applies to us. We get in the whoever bucket. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and I'm going to one-up that statement, greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Now, we've got to understand what this means, but just taking it here is that the same works that gave evidence that Jesus and the Father are one, that the Father is in the Son, is the same works that we will do and it will give evidence that we are in the Father, that we are in the Son. What does that mean? Well, we've already seen some works. The way works are defined throughout the, uh, the book of John and even the New Testament are, are good, good things. You're doing good things. So we've seen in John 13, it would be the good work of humility. You see in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's the good work of love. However, he's not just limiting it there. It would be 
the miracles that Jesus did. There would be healings. There would be miraculous things that Jesus did that give evidence to the Father's work in his life. Now, so what would it mean then that we will do greater works than he did? Probably does not mean greater in value. Meaning more supernatural. He's already raised Lazarus from the dead. Like he stopped a raging sea with words, peace be still. It's not greater in value. How is it greater? I would say it's greater in extent. And it's greater in one sense in nature. And here's what I mean by that. It's connected here to Jesus going to the Father, right? You see that? Look at verse 12. Greater works than these will he do because, because I am going to the Father. So it's intimately connected to Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to the Father. The greater works are intimately connected to Jesus having to die and rise from the dead and go and sit at the right hand of the Father. So, it's going to be greater in nature because Jesus' works were not able to fully demonstrate resurrection power and the judgment that must come upon sin when Jesus was judged on the cross for our sin, not his own, until after Jesus died and rose from the dead. So it will have this greater sense of clarity and yet I say power because in those deeds that are done, in miracles that are done, in our acts of love, in our humility, it will show not just the goodness of Jesus, but the goodness of a dead, resurrected Jesus that Jesus, his acts did not show until after the fact. Does that make sense? He has to have died and raised from the dead, so they're different in nature and they're different in extent. His deeds were done in and around there. But as the Holy Spirit comes and falls, our deeds will be done from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So the deeds will be greater. But don't miss this. Why does he say that? He wants to breathe confidence in every follower of Jesus. That means you. Nobody gets off the hook here. In every follower of Jesus that if you believe in him, through you, he will do greater works than he did through his son. Do you believe that? I don't think you do. <laughs> I think it's hard to get your mind around. But this is what we pray towards because that's why he said it. He wants his followers to be confident that God will, big W-I-L-L, -L, God will use his people to do great works of love and humility and, yes, even miracles for the glory of the Father by the power of the resurrected Son in the Holy Spirit. So, we have the works of the Father not only done through Jesus, but we have the works of the Father done through his people and... How do we do those works? It's through prayer. And we're going to spend all next week honing in on abiding in Christ and what does it mean to commune with him in prayer. But as we are led now into a time of prayer, I just want to say a couple of things. So this is basically a lead-in to next week's sermon that we will spend a lot of time focusing in on prayer. But this third thing that Jesus clearly communicates in this passage is that the great works will happen through prayer. The great works will happen through prayer. By faith in the Son, great works will happen through prayer. Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And now you listen and you're like, what? That just seems like an overpromise. It said whatever, right? Whatever. And then he says it again. Look at verse 14. 
If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The reason we're also going to talk about it next week is he says almost the exact same thing in John 15, and he says the, almost the exact same thing in John 16. So just to let you know, this wasn't a slip-up for Jesus. He actually says it multiple times in his unveiling of himself to the world because he wants his people praying. But the foundation that I think is really crucial right here is this. Some of us want to take the whatever and say, no, it's, 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 only, it's only certain things because when I ask for whatever, I don't always get what I ask for, right? Uh, we were sitting in community group this week, and we were talking about these verses. And I have a little five-year-old, just turned five this week, and we were reading these verses. It says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask. And I said, Justice, what would you like? Daddy, I want to go watch a video. We're right in the middle of community group. He's hanging out with us right here. It's not video time. We are actually trying to memorize some scripture together as a group. And so guess what I did? I said, no. I said, no, we're not going to do that right now. I believe this is best for you. So let's sit right here and we'll watch a video later, okay? And that's how I said it. Had the biggest smile on my face. Wasn't against him. Just wasn't best for him in that moment. Is this the picture you have of God when he says no to you? Why would I say no? Because I'm angry? No. Because I knew what was best and my five-year-old did not. You don't know what's best. Your father does. You can trust him. And so what he first wants when he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, the first word you need to put over that is surrender. Because what he wants in order to do great things through you is that you surrender your whole heart to him. And this is exactly what Jesus did in the garden, Luke 22. It says, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed saying, Father. Hear what he's saying? Father. He's going to the Father. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. I want exactly what you want because I know that that will be best for me. That's the first part of prayer. It is absolute surrender. And yet, he wants you to ask whatever. Some of the teenagers in our community group, they shared is like, Sometimes I feel hesitant to take the small things to God because I believe he's too big for those things. Like it's just, I don't need to bother him with the small things. I just need to kind of figure out what the big things are and take them to him. That's not what this says. God delights in giving good gifts to his children and he wants you to bring whatever to him. So you need to have surrender and then you need to have whatever. You need to have surrender your whole heart to him and ask whatever. Because in the asking, if it's not in alignment with his will, you will be shaped to look more like him. And if it is, you will have it because you asked. The reverse is true in James. He says you have not because you ask not. We must be a people of prayer. A people of prayer. Trusting that our Father is not moody. He's not shifting into holy mode when he says no, and therefore he's angry. No, his holiness is that he's so set apart because he is loving. And we're not. Where do I get that? Well, I think that's what Matthew says in Matthew 7. He says, ask, or what Jesus is saying um, in Matthew 7, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Do you hear this? Ask, 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 ask. That's what he wants you to do. He doesn't want you to try to figure yourself out, pretty yourself up. He wants you to ask. Don't wait and figure out, amen. Don't wait to figure out if you are right or you are ready. Go to him. Take your fears. Take your sadness. Take it all. Because either he will shape you or he will answer the prayer. For the glory of his father. Ask. And he goes on to say, now which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? And, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, <laughs> he's not flattering here. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The reason we don't ask is because we struggle to believe he's good. Philip said, the Father is enough. The Father is enough. And Jesus says, yes, he's enough. And the only way you get there is through me because I am enough. Trust me. Jesus is good. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? Surrender. And yet, ask. And this one last verse leads us into our time. Luke eleven thirteen. In Luke, he is actually saying the exact same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 7, except he changes the words. Luke eleven thirteen, And he says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Throughout the Bible, the good thing that we need the best thing that we need is the power and presence of the living God. Psalm 73 says, the nearness of God is my good. So when you ask, he wants us to begin at the foundational level. Our greatest need is the Father. Our greatest need is for the Spirit of God to come and to take up residence in the heart. We need his presence so that we're like Moses and we say, show me, O oh God, your glory. If you don't go with me, I should not go. I need you. He is, as A.W. Tozer says, he is a shoreless ocean. He has no boundaries. And in this moment, let's go after him in prayer. Let's pray together.